Morning. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, uh, book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, we are back in our Rooted Sermon Series, a four-sermon series that we're mixing in uh, with our series through the book of Ephesians this fall as we, again, prepare to move into this new building to just help us get recentered and refocused on what God calls us to both do and be uh, as a church. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be rooted in the truth. Uh, this week, we're looking at Acts 2 and talking about what it means to be rooted in the gospel. And what we're going to see ultimately is that being rooted in the gospel uh, makes us a generous people, both towards one another and towards outsiders, those who do not yet uh, follow Jesus. And so let's see this together. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 42 uh, and read down through verse 47. Starting in verse 42, the word of God to us today. It says this, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that above all, you have spoken to us. You've not left us in the dark. You have not left us groping about for a word from you. Thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, I pray this morning as we walk through it, God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? Would you help us to reflect this picture of the early church that we see? Would you help us to be a church shaped by your gospel that, that walks in these practices, that does these things, that is this generous towards one another? God, would you use us? Would you use your word in this moment to create that in us more and more as a church? I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're obviously picking up in the middle of the story here in Acts chapter 2. So let me catch you up uh, on where we've been in Acts chapter 2 uh, and what happens. And so Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's poured out his spirit on his disciples at Pentecost. And so after this, Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon, and uh, he preaches the gospel that even though Jesus was crucified, his resurrection from the dead proves that he is the Messiah. He's the Savior that was promised to the world. And because he rose from the dead, that shows us that his crucifixion was actually a sacrifice. It was a payment for sin so that anyone who would put their faith in him and turn from their sins would be saved from God's judgment and would be brought back into right relationship with God. And the text tells us that 3,000 people respond in repentance and faith to Peter's sermon and they're saved. They go public with that faith. They declare their allegiance to Jesus in baptism and they join the church. And so the church is born. Peter preaches God's word. He preaches the gospel message and the church is born. God's word creates the church. And it's right after this that we get this summary statement from the author Luke of what the early church's life looked like. And this is helpful for us because it answers the question of, okay, Jesus has saved you. What do you do now? What are you supposed to do after that? 
Well, we get the picture of what you're supposed to do after that here. You go public. You declare your allegiance and your faith in Jesus and your allegiance to his people through baptism. You join the church through baptism. And then you submit your life to and fold your life into the church. You devote yourself to the church. And what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is that the, the early church is devoting themselves to these certain habits and practices, these habits and practices that are forming them in the gospel. And so this is the first point, the first thing we see in the text, and I'll just warn you up front, we're going to spend the vast majority uh, of our time here on this first point this, first point this morning. Uh, but the first thing we see here is that a church produced by the gospel devotes themselves to gospel habits. And the first gospel habit, we see it here in the text in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is what the apostles were teaching about Jesus, about who he is and what he accomplished and about how he's the Savior and about how he fulfills all of the Old Testament. And that teaching eventually got written down as the New Testament. And so what we can say is that they devoted themselves to God's Word. They devoted themselves to the Bible. In fact, this is what we're confessing when we confess the Nicene Creed together as a church and confess that we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We're saying we believe that a true local church is apostolic, that it follows and submits to the teachings of the apostles, that it's a church that's devoted to God's Word. Uh, and this word devoted here, it's really helpful and gives us a good picture of what these early Christians are doing. To devote yourself to something is to cling to it, to hold fast to it, to shape your life around it, to make it one of the most important things in your life. For example, we say somebody is devoted to their job if they freely choose. I'm not talking about if you've got mandatory PT. I'm talking about if you freely choose uh, to show up early and stay late, if you work hard and you work long hours, and even when you're not at work, you're thinking about and dreaming about and talking about and scheming about work. Your life is shaped and formed around your job. You've made it one of the most important things in your life, so we say you're devoted to your job. Or think about the word that we've chosen for this campaign, the word rooted. To root yourself in something is to plant yourself there, to dig your feet in and to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to be moved from this spot. And this is what is going on here in the church. The first Christians, they're devoting themselves to these four habits as a church. They're planting the flag and rooting themselves here and saying, we're not going to be moved around this, moved off from this. We're going to make this the most important things in our lives. We're going to center our lives together as a church around these four things. And so the first of those things, again, the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to it. You see later on in the passage, in verse 46, that they're constantly gathering together at the temple to hear the apostles teach them about Jesus from the Word of God. They're gathering together as the church to hear the Word of God preached and taught. They are centering their lives around hearing the Word of God. Now, why are they doing that? And, and obviously, the question then is, why should we do that? Why is it essential for us that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, that we center our lives around hearing uh, from God's Word? Well, the reason why is because what the Bible teaches us over and over and over again is that God's Word creates life. In Genesis chapter 1, how does God create the entire world? 
through the power of his word, by speaking it into existence. He says, let there be this, and there it was. It comes into being. This is how God distinguishes himself from idols, from false gods. He says uh, that, that idols are lifeless. You can see them, but they don't talk. They can't speak. They can't do anything. In contrast, God is the living God, and the way we know he's the living God is because he speaks, and his word accomplishes whatever he wants it to do. You can see this in a place like Isaiah 44 and 45 and 46 and chapter 55, where God says that his word accomplishes whatever he sends it forth to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God tells us this is how he wants to be known by us. This is how he wants to have relationship with us through his word. He says, when he appeared to the people on Mount Sinai after he brought the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt, he says they saw no form, they just heard a voice, and the reason why is because God's telling us that's how he wants us to relate to him, by hearing his word and submitting to it, by shaping our lives around it and putting our lives under the authority of God's word. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel is given a vision of this valley that's full of dead, dry bones, and God appears to him and he says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know, only you know if these bones can live. And so God tells Ezekiel to prophesy, to preach to these bones that God is going to bring them back to life. And so Ezekiel preaches to these bones and declares God's word to these bones, and do you know what happens? Flesh comes onto the bones. Breath is put back in them. The text says they stand on their feet, an exceedingly great army. They come back to life, and God says this is a picture of his people. He's going to put his spirit in them and bring them to life from their graves. And how is he going to do it? Through the power of his word as it's preached. In Nehemiah chapter 8, after the people of God come back from exile, back into the promised land, and they need to be renewed as a people, do you know how they go about that? The prophet Ezra stands up on a pulpit and he reads the book of the law, uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, to all the people who have gathered together to hear God's word. It says he reads the book from morning until the middle of the day, and he and other men says they give the sense of it, they explain the text so that people can understand what's being read. So they preach the Bible, they explain the Bible to God's people, and this is how God says his people are going to be renewed. And so again, we see over and over again that God creates and sustains our spiritual life through his word, and primarily through the preaching of his word. God has chosen that preaching would be the primary means of hearing his word and his word creating and sustaining spiritual life in you. Preaching has this unique role and aspect because it has this sense of heralding God's message, declaring God's message, explaining what God says, showing how it's all about Jesus and calling everybody to respond to it. Something different is going on right now in this moment than what was going on yesterday morning when you and I were individually reading our Bibles. Look, you absolutely should read your Bible on your own, but hearing God's Word preached and taught is indispensable to your spiritual life and growth 
and health because this is how God creates life in us. God has chosen it to be this way. Romans 10 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, but it says how are people going to hear if nobody preaches to them? God has chosen to make it so that when his word is rightly preached, he grows faith and he sustains life in us because when God's word is rightly preached, God himself is speaking to us. He is speaking to us to nourish us and sustain us uh, with his word. We structure our life as a church around God's word. We devote so much emphasis to the preaching of God's word because we don't exist as a church without God's word. God's word gives birth to the church. That's why we should devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to being attentive to it, to gathering together and being attentive to it when it's read and when it's preached and when it's taught. And so we're to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Second, the text tells us that we're to devote ourselves to the fellowship. And the word for fellowship here has the sense of having all things in common, of holding things in common. In fact, in verse 44, when it says that all the believers were together and they had everything in common, uh, the same root word is being used there that's being used here for the word fellowship. And so the, the best way to think about this is uh, it, this is being devoted to having a common life together, to sharing life with one another and, and holding what we have in common together with one another. This is what the early church is doing. They're devoting themselves to living in real community with one another. They said, Jesus has made us a family. He's made us his body. He's made us one. And so we're going to live like it. We're going to devote ourselves to one another. We're going to walk with each other, and we're going to know each other deeply. Verse 46 tells us that they're together constantly throughout the week. And verse 46 also tells us there's two ways that this is playing out. They're attending the temple together, and they're breaking bread with each other in their homes. Attending the temple together means they are gathering together as a church to devote themselves to these four things together. And listen, this is essential for us as a church. Any fellowship that you and I might have outside of the church gathering starts in the church gathering and flows out from the church gathering, because our fellowship here as a gathered church both shows off to the world and reminds us what it is we actually have fellowship around, what it is we actually hold in common with one another, because what we hold in common with one another is not that we're all the same age, or that we're all the same gender, or that we're all the same ethnicity, or that we're all the same political party, or that we all have the same hobbies, or the same jobs, or that we're all in the same stage of life. No, what we hold in common is that we have all been saved by Jesus and brought together into his family. Listen, community group is great, but it does not showcase the power of the gospel like this assembly, this gathered church does, because what most of us do is we group ourselves in community groups around people who are in the same stage of life as we are, or, or some other normal point of connection besides Jesus. Listen, that's not wrong, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I am saying that's not what's taking place here this morning. That's not what this fellowship looks like this morning. We're united around Jesus, so we devote ourselves to the fellowship, 
to gathering together as a church because gathering together as a church puts on display what God has done to bring us together and to make us one. It showcases the power of the gospel more than anything else to unify us and bring us together around Jesus. Not just that, we we focus first here on this fellowship that we have as a gathered church because even the word that's used for church in the New Testament It means assembly. As we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2, the church is baptized believers who have gathered together regularly to hear God's word and to encourage one another and to help one another follow Jesus. And gathering together uh, is essential for us as a church. The church is more than its gathering, but it is definitely not less. I've heard it put like this, you know, a soccer team would still be a soccer team even when they're not practicing together or playing a game together, but only if they actually get around to playing a game together, right? Because if, if they never played a game together, could we really say that they're still a team? No, because they're not doing the one essential thing that makes them a team. In the same way, we're still the church even when we're scattered apart from one another but only if we're doing one of the main essential things of us gathering regularly together with one another. This is so essential, and so why does God attach so much importance to us gathering together, assembling together regularly as a church? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but I'll just give you one this morning, and it's the reason that this is one of the main ways that you and I grow. In fact, I'd argue that it's the main way that you and I grow as Christians, that the Sunday morning gathering is the primary means of discipleship in your life. As you gather with the church to hear God's word preached and you teach others in song and they teach you and we express our unity in Jesus as we take the Lord's Supper together and you use your spiritual gifts to build up the body and you encourage others and instruct others and pray for others and love others and care for others and serve others and rebuke others when necessary. Look, the best way for you to grow as a Christian is to commit to attending the Sunday morning gathering as often as you can, looking to serve others and use your spiritual gifts to build up the body when you do it. Of all the words that Jesus could have used to uh, define us and what he wants us to be defined as, he uses the word that means assembly. He defines who we are by the most essential thing that we do, the fact that we gather together regularly. Again, I love community group. I love Bible studies. I love the theological development cohort. I'm participating in all of those and would encourage you to as well, but, but those are all supplemental. This is essential to your discipleship. This is indispensable to your spiritual life and growth and health. We are called to devote ourselves to the fellowship of the church gathering And then that fellowship is meant to spread out to living life together with one another all throughout the week. Because one of the things, when you come into membership in a church, when you join a local church, one of the things you're doing is committing yourself to take responsibility for the other members in that church. You're committing yourself to help oversee their discipleship and help them follow Jesus. 
We're going to see this as we get to Ephesians chapter 4 in a few weeks, that all of us in this room have an indispensable role to play in building up the body into spiritual maturity and building up the body into all that God has designed it to be, that everyone in here has a job to do. Helping others in the church follow Jesus is an essential part of what it means for you yourself to follow Jesus. It's not just a dessert option that you can take if you're not too full from dinner. It is a non-negotiable of what it means to follow Jesus, that you're discipling others and helping other people follow Jesus. And so we've got to be devoted to the fellowship of life together throughout the week as well. Let me encourage you uh, in this like this. I'm borrowing this definition on discipling from Mark Dever. He's got a really uh, helpful little book on discipling called Discipling. Uh, and in the book, he says you can think of discipling like this, and, and I think this is just a helpful way to think of it. Think of discipling as, how can I help this person follow Jesus a little bit more than they do right now? How can I do some spiritual good to them? And then step into doing that. Find creative ways to do that. Take them out to breakfast or lunch and read the Bible with them and pray for each other. For those of you who are married, who've got some more years together uh, than some of us in the room, and have young married couples or singles over to your house for dinner and just let them see the normal routines of your family's life. Show them what it looks like for a godly wife to interact with her husband. Show them what it looks like for a godly godly husband to interact uh, with his family. Show them what it looks like for godly parents to repent to their children when they sin against them. Show them what it looks like for godly parents to correct and discipline their children in love. Show them what it looks like to follow Jesus in the normal, everyday routines of life. If you're an older woman in here, Titus 2 explicitly calls you to teach younger women here in the church, to teach them how to love their husbands and children and teach them what it means to follow Jesus. If you're an older man in here, Titus 2 calls you to the same thing as well, to teach younger men what it looks like to follow Jesus. We who are younger would so benefit from you seeing this as God's call on your life and stepping into it. And for those of you who are already doing this, and I know so many of you are already doing this so well, thank you for the ways you are modeling what it looks like to follow Jesus. You've got freedom to be creative in how you disciple others and help others follow Jesus here. What you don't have the freedom to do is to shirk your responsibilities of helping other people follow Jesus if you claim to follow him yourself. We are devoted to the fellowship, both when we gather together on Sundays and as we scatter throughout the week. So we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We devote ourselves to the fellowship. Third, he says we devote ourselves to the breaking of the bread, which means the Lord's Supper, to taking communion together. The early church was devoted to celebrating communion together, and they were devoted to this Because like these other habits, this habit forms us and shapes us deeper into the gospel. It presses the gospel deeper into our hearts as every week we see the gospel visually visually and tangibly put on display for us. As we see the bread ripped apart, we know that Jesus' body was torn to make us whole, that his blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness and so that we could be brought together as his family. We could be made Uh, his body. Now, 
something I want to clear up here. Sometimes people read verse 46 where it says they're breaking bread together in their homes, and they take that to mean, okay, so they're taking the Lord's Supper when they're all together as a church, and they're also taking the Lord's Supper when they're together in their homes. Um, that's not what they're doing here. I, look at your Bible. I, I want you to see this. Notice in verse 42 that each of these four things has a definite article in front of them. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread, and devoted to the prayers. Notice in verse 46, there's no definite article. It says they're just breaking bread in their homes, which just simply means they're eating together. By saying the breaking of bread in verse 42, Luke is marking out what they're doing as a church when they celebrate the Lord's Supper as something distinct and different from what they're doing in their homes as they eat together. And maybe you think, well, I'm kind of making a bigger deal out of this than there really is, right? I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but I'm harping on this because, you know, we might think, oh, the Lord's Supper's great. It grows me in my faith, so I should just do it all the time. I should do it in my community group. We should do it with the family around dinner. I just need to get as much of this as possible. I want to encourage you not to do that. Because when you do something like that, you're actually taking away one of the major things that the Lord's Supper signifies. You're actually taking away one of the main things that the Lord's Supper means. The, the Lord's Supper does not belong to individual Christians or even to groups of Christians. It belongs to the church. Jesus gave it to the church. And the reason why he gave it to the church is because the Lord's Supper is not just a devotional snack to help supercharge your relationship with God. It is absolutely meant to grow you in your faith, but it's not just meant to do that. It's also meant to grow you and deepen you in the unity that we have with one another as a church, as Jesus' body. The Lord's Supper signifies what Jesus has done, not just to save us, but to make us His body, to make us members of one another. To borrow a phrase, the Lord's Supper makes the many into one. It is not just showcasing the unity that we have with God. It's not just showcasing the unity we have with our nuclear family. It's not just showcasing the unity that we have with our community group. It is showcasing the unity that we have as an entire church. It's deepening that unity. And this is what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 10 says that we, the church, though we are many, are one body because we take this meal all together as one. In chapter 11, it says over and over and over that we are to take the Lord's Supper when we come together as a church. And so we devote ourselves to the Lord's Supper as a church, and it forms us deeper into both the good news of the gospel, our vertical reconciliation with God, and the good news of the gospel, our horizontal reconciliation with one another. If we'll see and believe the sermon that it is preaching to us, every week. Finally, it says they were devoted to the prayers. Now, by saying the prayers, that could mean a lot of different things. This could mean the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This could mean other biblical prayers like the Psalms. But what we do know is that they were devoted to praying with and for one another. They were devoted to seeking God's face in prayer and being dependent on him together as a church. And listen, this is essential for us as a church as well because Jesus in John 15 says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Not some things, nothing. Every good thing that has happened in this church, 
every time someone has come to faith in Jesus, every time someone has grown spiritually in Jesus, every time a marriage has been restored and healed, every time a sickness or a disease has been healed, every time someone gets victory over a habitual sin that they are struggling with, all of that is an absolute gift of God. That's not something that we engineered the schemes just right to make sure that that came about. That was God's work. That was God's gift. We are dependent on God for everything we do as a church, and that never changes. We don't grow to a place where we become less dependent on Him, and so we should pray. We should pray with and for one another. In fact, this is one of the main ways that you serve your brothers and sisters here, by praying for them, by pleading with God that He would keep them and He would keep their hearts turned towards Him. And we should pray for outsiders as well. Pray that God would use us in this new building, in this new area of town to be a witness and a blessing to the people that are there. And so this is what we're called to do as a church. This is what the Bible calls us to, to be a church that is devoted to hearing and submitting themselves to the authority of God's Word, that's devoted to fellowship together as a church and scattered throughout the week. It's devoted to celebrating our unity together in the Lord's Supper, and that's devoted to praying and seeking God's face together and being dependent on Him as a church. None of that changes as we move into a new building. These are habits to double down on, to refocus ourselves on, because this is the essentials of what we're called to do as a church. This is what God has called the church to do for all of its history. This is how God grows His church. And so we see a church produced by the gospel. It devotes themselves to gospel habits, but not just that. A church produced by the gospel also develops radical generosity. Look again with me. Uh, at verse 43 through 45. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so we see that these habits that the first Christians have devoted themselves to are developing something in them and what it's developing in them is radical generosity. I mean, this is crazy, right? All who believed were together and had everything in common. Now, I'm, I'm sure you may have heard people talk about this text before and say that, that what we have here is a picture of the early church developing a form of kind of early socialism or communism. That, that the early church just sold everything they had and all moved into a big commune together and sang kumbaya and friends are friends forever uh, together after all of that. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Uh, and, and we know that's not what's going on here. A few reasons. One, this wasn't a program started by the government or by the apostles. The members of the church freely chose to do this and adopt this mindset of radical generosity. And then two, it says they're meeting in each other's homes. And you can't meet in each other's homes if you sell your home, right? Right? And so this text is not advocating for socialism or communism, but on the other hand, we don't want to let that be an excuse to not actually hear this text. Because while this text is not advocating for socialism or for communism, it is advocating for radical generosity. It is advocating to us to hold our possessions lightly. It is advocating us to be the first one in line to meet a need when someone in the church has a need. 
Because what these early Christians were doing was anytime somebody in the church had a need, people were stepping up and saying, well, I can sell my TV and that will pay for your rent this month. Or, hey, we've got two cars and we could really do with just sharing one. And so here, you take this one or we'll sell it so that you've got food on the table this month. Or, yeah, we were planning to add on to our house and make this new addition, but uh, we don't need that. What your kids need is clothes, and so I'm going to take the money I was saving up for that addition and give it to you so that you can put clothes uh, on your children. It was just, okay, what's the need? How can we step up and meet it? And notice in the text, there's nothing that tells us that this was a program the apostles started. No, the members of the church are just freely choosing to do this. This was a mindset. Everything they owned was on the table to potentially be sold or shared or given away to help meet needs so that no one in the church community had a need. And so here's the question I want to lay out for you. What if we actually did this? What if this, is the, what if this was the description that someone could write about our church? What if we actually believed this text and did not just say, oh, well, that's just describing what the early church did, good for them? No, what if we adopted this mindset and said, you know what? My life, my time, my money, my resources, they don't belong to me anymore. They belong to Jesus. And so anytime somebody needs some of that in the church, I'm going to step up and see how I can give of my time and my money and my life and my resources so that they can have that need met. Now, before I, I talk specifically about the campaign, I, I want to lay this out and be clear for you. Uh, giving in general is a matter of faithfulness to God and stewardship. It's a matter of trusting God with your money and acknowledging that you are a steward of it, that it's actually not your money, it's God's money that he's given to you to be a good steward of. So giving in general is a matter of faithfulness and stewardship Giving specifically to this campaign is not. Uh, you are not in sin if you do not specifically give to this building campaign. This is not a matter of your faithfulness to God. And you're not in sin if you aren't able to give above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings uh, to be able to give to this campaign. And I'm not going to try to strong arm you into giving to this campaign because if you just give to this because you feel guilty about it, well, that's not going to be good for, e for us as a church or for you individually. With that said, I do want to encourage you that, that one of the reasons we're even doing this campaign and, and calling you into this is so that we can have more of these opportunities to equip and to serve both you here in the church and then outsiders, people who don't yet follow Jesus as well. H having a building is not everything. We don't need one to be a church, but having a building offers us the opportunity to plant ourselves in a certain area of the city and begin to try to be a blessing and a witness to that area of the city. It provides opportunities to use this building as a tool for ministry. And so we're really not asking you to give for chairs or for lights or anything like that. We're asking you to give so that we can move into this new season of ministry that affords us some unique opportunities for outreach, for evangelism, for discipleship that we just haven't had as a church before. But, but even more than the building campaign, this text is calling you to a life of radical generosity in general because if we'll start adopting this mind suit and pursuing radical generosity with one another, 
it will lead us into a deeper experience of the gospel because the gospel tells us that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty you and I might become rich. Jesus, who had all the riches of heaven, freely gave that up and became a man and lived as a poor, wandering, homeless man and then was crucified in shame as a criminal to pay for our sins and rose from the dead so that we could have the riches of life with him forever. And so we follow the example of Jesus. We lean into the sufferings of Jesus when we serve and sacrifice and spend ourselves so that others might be served and others might be built up and others might be encouraged and grow and flourish. And this sort of generosity will be a radical witness because nobody else is doing this. The government cannot produce this because it cannot change our selfish hearts. But the gospel can, because the gospel can kill our Western American mindset that it's my money, and it's my time, and it's my life, and it's my resources. I've worked hard for all of it, so it's mine to enjoy. No, the gospel tells us that even if you did work hard for it, it's not yours. It's God's that he's given to you as a gift to be a good steward with it and use your resources to serve others and show people that you have a treasure that's more worth living for than money. We use our money and our time and our lives and our resources to serve our greater treasure, which is Jesus, not the other way around. And again, this will be a radical witness because nobody else is doing this. No one else is this open-handed with their time and their money and their lives and their resources and their stuff. So church produced by the gospel, it devotes themselves to gospel habits. It develops radical generosity. And finally in the text, we see a church produced by the gospel displays Jesus together. Look again at verse 46 and 47 with me. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as the church lives this life together, devoting themselves to these things and, devoting them, and developing radical generosity with one another, God's using it in a specific way And the specific way he's using it is he's using their common life together as a witness. As they live together and serve together and worship Jesus together day by day, God is saving people day by day and bringing them into the church. And so here's what I want you to see from this. God is giving us a picture here of what he declares explicitly in other parts of the New Testament, and that's that God's plan for how he's going to reach the world is the local church. God's evangelism and mission strategy is the local church. God says in Ephesians 3 that the way he makes known his great wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places is through what? It's through the church. God says, hey, you want to see how wise I am? Look at the church and how I can bring diverse peoples together and unite them around my son Jesus and make them one body. Jesus says in John 13 that the world will know we are his disciples, not by our love for them, but by our love for one another, by our love for our brothers and sisters. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that when we put the Word of God on display in our church gatherings, when it's rightly preached and when we teach and encourage and instruct one another with God's Word, then outsiders, people who aren't followers of Jesus, will come to our church gatherings, will hear the good news of the gospel, and it says they will fall on their knees and worship and declare God is really among you. They will be saved. All of which points to the fact that the local church has a witness all its own, that our life together, when we gather on Sundays and as we scatter throughout the week, is meant to be so distinct and so different that it draws unbelievers to see the beauty and glory of Jesus and be saved. And so here's what I want to call you to. Do you want to see your friends and your neighbors reached? Do you want to see people in the neighborhoods around 584 South Riley Road come to faith in Jesus? Then devote yourself to building up the church. Devote yourself to loving your brothers and sisters. Devote your life to hearing God's Word, reading God's Word, and encouraging and instructing others with God's Word. Serve others, care for them, pray for them, love them, sacrifice for them, and spend time with them in a way that people cannot get anywhere else. Then you'll have something to point to with your friends and neighbors and say, you see, this is what the gospel does in people's lives. This is how powerful Jesus' resurrection from the dead is. Look at how it has changed selfish people who only cared about themselves and their nuclear families into people who serve and spend and sacrifice themselves for the good of others. Look at how it's brought people together who have no business being together. God can do the same thing for you too. The local church displays, it makes the power of the gospel visible and tangible as we live our lives together, this new life that Jesus has purchased for us together as a church. And so as we prepare to move into a new building, I want to encourage you, yeah, there will be some new things to do, but ultimately what's most essential is to redevote ourselves to these essentials, to being a church that's devoted to hearing and submitting to God's Word, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, a church that develops radical generosity with one another in a church that displays the beauty of Jesus together through living a common life that you just can't find anywhere else. If we will commit ourselves and devote ourselves to doing that, and who knows what God might be pleased to do among us. It's definitely worth us finding out. Let me pray that we would. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture of what you have called us as a church to do and be. God, ultimately we know and we see in the biblical text that uh, our best efforts to produce a church like this in our own strength will fall short. Only your gospel and your word creating and sustaining and growing life in us can do this. So God, would you do this? Would you develop us into a church that that more and more is shaped by these things and characterized by these things? God, thank you for the men and women in this room that have devoted their lives to serving you and to serving others here in this room and have 
devoting themselves to making sure that we all get home, to helping each other follow Jesus. God, would you do it still more in our church? Would you encourage us and help us to do this even more? God, I I pray that you would in your name. Amen.